Hey, hello there. Hi, I'm Rick. And I'm Clark. Welcome to another episode of... Monday, Monday afternoon, theologian. And Rick, we're back again with another Monday afternoon. Yeah, here we are. And today we have a really light question. Yeah, I'm glad that we get to tackle the light stuff. Yeah, because I don't think people have ever talked about this question at all. Uh, It's just such a given on either side of it that um, I don't think there's been more than, I don't know, a couple of pamphlets, maybe a (laughs) 10-minute discussion. But, uh, well, maybe there's been more than that. Maybe a little. Because today's question is, is there a God? Yeah. And, uh, of course, because we are so intelligent and we're so gifted in communication, and since we're really doing all this for our personal gain and glory, um, it should take us five minutes and we'll have this one knocked out. Yeah, it'll be done and uh, we can move on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or not. Or not. Uh, yeah, honestly, <laughs> this is the kind of stuff that with fear and trepidation, guy who's been at this for quite some time, I look at this topic and I think, oh, Lord, help me. I, who am I? I'm a man of unclean lips. I feel like Isaiah. <laughs> and I feel like I, of all people, don't possibly have enough knowledge to be able to make this one comprehensive to anybody. So I admit right off the bat that I'm starting with a deficit of information. I mean, I'm, I'm not the smartest person I've ever met. And I'm, I've read a few good books by some very intelligent people. And I've gained a few insights and some analogies that help me as I try to dive in and think intellectually about some of these big issues. But I do not feel like an expert on this subject at all, other than I have experienced this living God. And so I can say, I still believe that he is real. So all that is to say, with fear and trepidation, I'm going to put it out there with you, and we're going to wrestle through some of these things together. But I honestly wholeheartedly believe with all my heart that yes, there is a God. And you'd expect me to say that. (laughs) Of course we would. And, you know, obviously there's been libraries of tomes written on the subject. There has been discussions since people became self-aware in any way. And perhaps today all we can do is offer up some questions as Mm -hmm. to how people might explore it and you know, explore it for themselves to start working into a better understanding of where they stand on it and perhaps provide some insights. Actually, um, we'll probably look at some of the arguments on both sides, whether there is a God or there isn't. And then people have to come up with their own conclusions because we talked a little bit last time about free will and how it's necessary. Mm -hmm. So, um, we might want to take a look at how people come to their faith position. Good idea. Yeah, I've read a couple of books that seem to get a little heady for me because they're trying to come at it from an ontological perspective and a philosophical perspective. And they, they look through a whole lot of different filters. And every one of those filters, they wind up at the same conclusion. Yes, there is a God. So I think I'm going to try to ratchet back even a little broader than that because there are certain times when we're trying to argue our way into a position when we need to be aware that there are some presuppositions 
And there are many people who have some preconceived ideas that they bring to the table. We all do that. I admit that I do that. We're biased. So I'm kind of starting at a broader look at this picture rather than starting to dive right into any one of those specific arguments to see if we can outscoff the scoffers. <laughs> because I, I don't have enough information to outscoff the scoffers. There are a lot of people who are probably more knowledgeable than I am on many of these subjects. But I would like, as you say, for us to raise good questions. Because even if we can just hook those question marks into the margins in these people's minds, I really think that the Holy Spirit uses those questions to help continue to nag at us in a good way and to draw us to himself. And I'm still a firm believer that there's a supernatural thing at work here, as we've mentioned, and that God is that hound of heaven who is trying and and working diligently to reveal himself and to draw us to himself. So we just want to lift him up so that he's the one who's doing the drawing. And I think that as we continue to do that, even with these questions, I'm going to trust that he's going to be the one to do whatever work he's going to do in people's hearts. Well, you know, we look at the world today, at least in America, it appears that more and more people are rejecting the concept of a God. Mm -hmm. They're deciding that because the world is such a mess, or because they don't want there to be a God, mm -hmm. that they are moving more to a more atheistic position, whether that's complete denial of any type of deity or denial of a deity that would have a personal impact on an individual's life. Um, they may claim to be spiritual, but not religious. Mm -hmm. So what do we learn about how those trends are going? I was quite surprised as I started looking into this a couple of years ago, and it seems that you're right. I think in America, we you don't have to look very far to find people who are buying into this new pop atheism. It's becoming trendy, in fact. Uh, and there's a ton of stuff on the Internet that people can just latch on to that would start to try to refute the Bible as a credible source of information. And if you can just wipe that out right off the bat, then where else have we to go you know so that that's what a lot of the the anti bible stuff that i found that's out there and yet there are other trends around the globe that show people are actually moving closer toward religion or spirituality around the world that there are more people today than there were 35 years ago and that if the trend continues it's going to keep going in that direction so I don't think we can just completely wipe out the fact that religion is going to go away. The evidence just doesn't support that assumption. Yeah, that's kind of surprising because we live in our American bubble and we see how all of the trends in pop culture, in politics, in all of the more secular areas are leading to a more secular society. Mm -hmm. And so... Uh, it almost seems counterintuitive to think that in other parts of the world, people are actually more interested in learning about God and those spiritual matters that will impact their lives. Yeah, we've seen that on a smaller scale with some of the folks from our local congregation in Michigan. Uh, we have five of us on a team that have gone down to Haiti, and we've done some pastor training weeks. It's kind of a seminary extension type of a thing. And so uh, they are hungry. I mean, just hungry for more of what they can soak up around God's word and the inspired word of God. They And they believe it, man. They grab hold of it 
and it's transforming their culture. You can see firsthand when you walk among people of faith in other countries how it's real to them, and it's like breathing to them. It's a daily practice. So it, it feels good for me to look around and to have experienced on a very small scale some of those trends that are happening elsewhere because I come back to America and I say, yeah, it's not dead. God's not dead. He's still very much at work, but we have our work cut out for us in America because I think there are a lot of people who are just putting their faith in themselves. As we look at most people's position relative to some type of a deity, mm-hmm. it seems that no matter where you stand, there's an element of faith. Yeah. And yet, for people who are intellectually honest, there needs to be some reason as well, mm-hmm. not just emotion, because emotion is easy and it's transitory and um, is very unreliable. Yeah. So how do we get past well, I know God is true because the light shined and it just came upon me and mm-hmm. it's um, it's self-evident now because he illuminated my life and that's all I have to, to stand on. Which can be quite dangerous. All you have to do is look at the movie called The Apostle and you can see that it's very dangerous <laughs> when somebody takes that as their position just because God came to me, he showed me the truth, and now I've got it. Uh, it that can lead to some very scary places. But you're exactly right, Rick. I think some of the stuff I've been looking at shows me that it's interesting how we arrive at our positions of faith. And perhaps we use different terminologies to describe that. And I think people in science tend to avoid the word faith because they don't want to blur those lines because they kind of feel, at least the people I've spoken with, tend to say, no, 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 science belongs over here in empirical evidence. Faith is something very different. And I would like to raise that question to say, really, isn't it true that we all place our faith in something? And if we're placing our faith in empirical evidence, then that's where we're placing our faith. And if that's what helped lead you to your conclusions, then I think we need to try to use enough terminologies that are similar to each other so we can see if we're really getting onto the same page and talking about it. We talked uh, a little bit last time or the time before about that moment of creation versus the big bang, whether it was intentional or whether it was, you know, 13 billion years ago and something just happened and all the matter appeared. And since then things have been in a constant state of flux Mm -hmm. in both cases, nobody I know was there for either of those. Right. So um, you've got to look at that and go, um, for some reason, I believe the creation side of it, or I believe the evolution side of it, but not being there, there has to be that element of faith in that position, because there isn't empirical evidence that we can document because we weren't there. Mm-hmm. I, I continually come back to this, and you're, you're going to think I'm a broken record, but <laughs> I keep seeing... And this is now coming at this with about four decades of ministry that as I've tried to find which thing I would point to as the good starting place, you know where I'm going with this. It's the resurrection (laughs) because there is empirical evidence. There were eyewitnesses. And yes, you can try to contest that if you want. 
and you can dig into it. And I would hope that you do dig into that. But if you start there and if you can find literal empirical evidence for an event that took place that was different than any other event in history, then you can start trying to figure out some of the big questions that grow out of that one event. And so I continually keep coming back to that. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is the central position that involves faith, yes, and yet it also involves some empirical evidence, both at the same time. And that brings me to this point that I think that anybody who moves from one position to another does so by both faith and reason. It, it did that even in uh, getting our puppy that my daughter owns now. There were some good reasons why I didn't want another dog. For one thing, I was heartbroken when our family pet of 14 years died about four years ago. And I didn't want that pain in my life again. I honestly admit that. I thought, man, dog ownership is a setup for pain. Because <laughs> chances are they're not going to live as long as we do. But secondly, we live in a smaller space now than we did when we had that dog. We live in a little two-bedroom condo, and I thought, we don't have enough room for a dog, and I'm going to be the one who's going to wind up letting that dog out to go to the bathroom all the time anyway, and I don't want that extra hassle. I, I had all these reasons, so I reasoned my way to my conclusion, no, we don't want a dog. And then my daughter started working on us. <laughs> As they do. As they do. And I kept seeing these cute little puppy videos and all this other stuff. And then what really pushed us over the edge was an emotional experience that my wife and I both had. Joy and I went over to visit Callie, who was house-sitting with some for some friends of ours, and they own a little Boston Terrier. And we were around that little Boston Terrier, and we saw what a delightful little breed of dog Chewy was. And, I, and Joy even said it out loud. I couldn't believe she'd said it. I my jaw dropped. She said, you know, I think if we could have a dog like this, it might not be so bad. And I thought, oh, honey, you've just opened the door. <laughs> and it was within about 10 minutes after that, that Callie was online researching Boston Terriers, you know. Mm -hmm. But there was an emotional push that got both of us over there. We experienced something that caused us to feel something and so our decision was partly based on real evidence we saw with our own eyes, but there was an emotional tug too. And I think that there are both of those influences at work, intellect and emotion, in any change from one faith position to another. Uh, what do you think about that? Well, I think there almost has to be because we are complex individuals and we aren't pure reason and we aren't pure emotion and we aren't pure spirit. All those together help us to understand whatever side we take. But the element of faith is, is the one that's perhaps the most difficult to overcome, if you will, yeah. by people on the other side. Yeah. Because if your faith gives you one explanation, but it's not their explanation, those faiths are in conflict. Yeah. And... They don't necessarily like that, especially if their faith in their position is so grounded mm -hmm. after you know, 20, 40, 60, however many years. Mm -hmm. That has also been reinforced emotionally because over the years, their personality, their self-definition has been 
tempered by their emotional reaction. And in most cases, people decide who they're going to be. And then they have the emotions that will help to solidify that in their psyche to the point that they are defined in this particular way. Mm -hmm. And if they're going to change, then they have to undo a lot of that emotional baggage that put them in that position. And that's very difficult. Oh, no kidding. There are some things even in the Christian doctrine that I learned growing up that I had to shift my position a little bit on those doctrine. I didn't jettison them altogether, but I had a, a slightly different nuanced look at certain doctrine. And it was a big deal for me. I had to really wrestle through that stuff. And part of what led me to that doctrine was that I had a faith community that believed that way. And I wanted to please the people around me. And there was that line of orthodoxy and a line of heresy. And as long as I fell within the line of orthodoxy, and I was confessing the same things that these people were confessing, I was okay and they would accept me. But if suddenly I came along and said, you know, I think it's okay for Baptists to dance at wedding receptions. <laughs> Some people might have had a big problem with that 30 years ago. And so I had to I'm wrestle with that. a problem with that today. <laughs> <laughs> well, especially if they see me dance. <laughs> <laughs> they would say, yeah, just because you think you can do a thing doesn't mean you should do a thing. <laughs> Tim Keller said something about that. And I appreciate Tim. I think he has a, a compassionate heart and an intellectual mind. And he shows great compassion for people who think differently about things than he does. And I really respect him for that. I want to have that same demeanor as I come across people who think differently than I do, because I want them to know that I care about them. I really love them because God loves me, and I want to share that love with others. But he was saying that there is that line of orthodoxy and a line of heresy, even in people who are atheists or agnostics, depending on who we have aligned ourselves with in that community of people who are around us. If you suddenly started to have questions about certain things that they think are orthodox, let's say that an atheist starts to have doubts about atheism, and he starts to think maybe there is something to this God. If he voices that out loud in certain circles, I think that he's going to find some pretty strong pushback. If I were to write an article in a professional scientific journal that suggests that some of the things I'm discovering are leading me to think that there may be a God, I mean, I'd be sacrificing my professionality. That, that would be it. <laughs> so some people think that certain people are heretics, but I think that happens on the faith side and the non-faith side equally. And that's what Tim's point was. I'm not making his point very well, but you see what I'm talking about. There's this orthodoxy and heresy, regardless of where you come from. Well, and I think we see that to the absolute extreme in the political world today. You know, if you don't believe this particular way, then the cancel culture pops up. And next thing you know, uh, everything you say is is awful and horrible, and you're not fit to be in society, and we are going to cancel you not only professionally, but personally, and we're probably going to send you to Cuba because um, you don't believe the way we do. And um, I see it as exponentially growing in that arena 
but we have seen it particularly in the sciences where if somebody says, yeah, based on all of the things I've seen, I'm thinking that there could be a creator. And the next thing you know, they've lost their university job, their, you know, their tenure doesn't matter anymore. And they're essentially out on the street because they have crossed the line into heresy mm -hmm. and therefore they're not included in that community anymore. Right. And I've seen something that's a bit of a trend and it's troubled me, quite frankly, even among people that I would consider Christian brothers and sisters, because you would have somebody who has a great testimony. They always use that term in Christian circles. They have a story of their conversion from one thought to another. The, the person says, I used to be an atheist. I saw the light. I'm a Christian now. There's all this evidence. But instead of being compassionate toward people that they came out of from that circle of influence, they become dug in in their position and they come across kind of hateful and rude. And they scoff at the people that they used to belong to. And I see Paul, the apostle saying, hey, let's avoid that, folks. <laughs> if you're going to switch positions, that's great. But let's be loving toward those people because he even says that to some of the people who used to live a certain way. He said, you used to be like that. So why are you becoming this way? Let's not become dogmatic in our view and look at them as though they're those dirty, rotten sinners. You used to be one of those dirty, rotten sinners. <laughs> That's paraphrasing Paul. <laughs> but I've been to a couple of conferences and I thought I'm uncomfortable with the tone they set because I would like for people to be able to say, let's have a conversation. And even if we get to the end of our conversation and I'm not yet, I'm not yet where you are, I can admit that to say, I still disagree, but I'm still wrestling with this statement. And I thank you for being able to listen with an open mind to me. I'll try real hard to do the same for you. I hope we can show respect to one another. I think that there's a lot of growth that can happen when we do that. So then the question becomes, if you're on the Christian side or a deity side, if you're on the atheist side thinking it's not possible that there's any type of a God, mm -hmm. can those be proven? That's a very good question. <laughs> because if there is no empirical evidence to support either one of those things, then how can somebody know empirically that their position is the correct position? So to be fair, <laughs> I think this is where we need to couch some of our definitions. The kind of statement that somebody might say, you can't prove that. And I've actually had somebody say that to me, I mean, to my face. They said, you can't prove that position because there's no evidence. And I didn't have enough wherewithal to be able to have a good comeback because usually I just kind of go. <laughs> but if I had enough quick thinking, I probably would have said, well, what you've just said is a form of dogma, a doctrine. You have said that that is a specific statement that's always true. It's not a logical argument. For somebody to say, you can't prove this because there's no evidence, that's a dogmatic statement in itself. So you can't really back that kind of statement up with logic. And I think that both sides, again, and I see a lot of that happening on the Christian side of that fence too. So I have to say, we all need to beware of making those kinds of dogmatic statements if we can't really back something up with logic. So if somebody claims that Christianity is dogmatic and illogically assertive, I think it's fair to ask, isn't an atheist doing the same thing by asserting that there is no evidence that God exists? Isn't that a dogmatic statement? I just like to hang those question marks out there for us to wrestle with. 
Well, and then the question becomes, what do you see as evidence? What do you agree is evidence? Mm. It's really easy to be that dismissive and say there is no evidence at all, period. And as you say, that's a very dogmatic statement that can't be proven. Mm. So if on the Christian side, we can't prove it empirically, as you just said, on the other side, that can't be proved empirically either. Right. A couple of very big questions that jump out at me from these kinds of discussions about what evidence is there. I've noticed that there's a little bit of a trend today among some of the younger uh, pop atheists that I have bumped into and, wh- and whom I care about deeply. Uh, they would say, I feel very happy in my faith now or in my lack of faith. I'm happy with where I am. I'm happy in determining that I can become uh, somebody who, for myself, looks for the good in others. So there's that humanitarian belief. So in a sense, they're saying that is some of the evidence that my faith is just fine. If my faith is in myself, in my ability to do good for others or whatever, then I'm okay with that. People have tried to dive into that, say, well, where does humanitarian belief come from? So I'm going to dive into that for a minute. As an example... If you were to say that we should feed the poor and take care of those who can't take care of themselves, and I think we should, then you've just stated a belief. we got people who are atheistic over here, Christians over here, both the atheists and the Christians. Then it's wrong for a Christian to demand that an atheist prove their position empirically, and it would also be wrong for an atheist to demand to a Christian that they prove their position empirically. Neither can be proven empirically. Both are based on values that form what we call a belief system. So where does this secular humanist's assertion that we should treat all humans with dignity come from then? Many people, in fact, I'd go so far as to say probably most secular humanists assert that humans should share their wealth and power rather than exploit other humans. Social justice, it's a big deal right now. We should aim for social justice and that we should seek to treat every human with love and dignity. And I agree with that. And I personally think these values are great, but I would ask that person on that side of the fence, well, where do these values come from? And to suggest, well, they come because I think that we have learned through evolution to become that way. We got here by random chance through evolution And that's how we get to the point we should treat everybody with dignity and we should work hard for social justice. I would say there's no logic behind that. Well, I think you're you're right, because if we look at the evolutionary model and we look at the concept of survival of the fittest, which is not necessarily the strongest, uh, but that which fits best into the ecosystem at that moment, We find that there's no overarching, I'm going to call it law, but mm-hmm. there's no overarching goodness that comes from that. Because if the strong survive and the weak are eaten, mm-hmm. then there's no goodness in that. There's no love in that. There's no yeah. sharing of our, of our resources in that. It's I'm out to take care of myself. I don't care about you. Mm-hmm. That's a big leap. I agree. And I, I just uh, scrolled up to an illustration that I had found. It was from a secular humanist who wrote something in the New York Times. 
And I like this illustration because it says exactly what you're saying. Um, he says, I'm going to quote this guy. He says, when the Hubble Space Telescope pointed to a black spot in the sky about the size of an eraser head for a week, it found 30,000 galaxies with many trillions of stars and many, many more inferred planets. So how significant are you? You are not a unique snowflake. You are not special. How's that for our self-esteem? <laughs> <laughs> but then he goes on. He says, you are just another decaying piece of decaying matter on a compost pile of this world. I don't know if you've smelled a compost pile before. Not pretty. Decaying. Nothing of who you are or what you do in this short time you have here on Earth will matter. Everything short of that realization is vanity. So, celebrate life in every moment. Admire its wonders and love without reservation. When he got to the part about everything short of that realization is vanity, I'm thinking, wow, that's a downer. And then he goes, so celebrate life in every moment. That, that one shocked me a bit, because when I think the word so usually means, it usually means because this is true, logically following, this also should be true. And I don't see that with that so. I think he's tried to use the connecting word so to do something that's completely the opposite, quite frankly, of what he was just describing. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't see that conclusion at all, because if there is no purpose if there's no reason because we're such a tiny speck in such a vast universe mm. and nothing that we do here will matter in the next 10 minutes, let alone for eternity, yeah. then there's no reason to do good for other people. There's right. really no reason to celebrate because eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. You know, right. that's, <laughs> that, that's not a sustaining philosophy that will help us in the long run. Right. So uh, it's, it's really, you know, one of the biggest leaps to go, really, you're nothing at all. We're dust in the wind, as Kansas said. Yeah. And uh, therefore, do good to others. That, that's jumping a chasm that I can't even begin to imagine. Yeah, no, I, I really agree. I, I see that the, the Christian worldview says, there's a God who loved you so much that he made all this for your benefit. We messed it up through sin, but that didn't stop him wanting to bless you. He's still going to do that, and he makes a way for you to get reconciled with him by sending his son to die in your place. And if you'll just accept his free grace, you can be reconciled, and you will enjoy that wonderful world he's created for you for eternity, thanks to what his son did for you. I see that as a good reason to celebrate life and to treat others with respect. Well, and then you have the premise that says overarching everything is this umbrella of love that God bestows on us, not because of what we've done, but because who he is and how much he loves us. Yeah. Then there's a reason for us to share that love. Yeah. But we're a speck in the cosmos, then that love umbrella isn't there. And there's no reason for us to do anything but survive, right. regardless of what that means for your well-being. Yeah, so true. There's a Russian philosopher named Vladimir Slovyov. And he was being kind of facetious when he was responding to that kind of illogical reasoning. We are not snowflakes. We're a compost pile. 
and therefore love each other and celebrate life. He says, man descended from apes. Therefore, we must love each other. And I, I see the facetiousness in that. And that is quoted by Tim Keller in his book called Making Sense of God. And I'm going to put a, a link to where you can find that book in the description section of this particular video, by the way, if anybody's interested. Tim Keller is just so brilliant. I appreciate him. Smarter than I'll ever be. And I like, uh, I like his approach to trying to outline things with gentleness and respect. You said something, Rick, that did make sense to me. I, I feel like that if we're going to treat one another with respect, it should come from some logical reasoning. And the logical reasoning behind the Christian worldview is God made us that way. He wired us that way. We're going to be reflecting his glory to others as we're treating them the way he treats us. That's where this goodness for others comes from. And I, I think there's a lot to that. Well, and we're, we're taught in the Bible that we are the highest creation that there's something different about the human race from all other races. And therefore we can manifest his love in the lives of others because of what he's done for us. And there's a big difference there. If we are just the pinnacle of the evolutionary scale, then we're not that much different. There is a big difference between humans and the highest of apes on a DNA level, not too much, but when we look at all of the different components of a human personality, it's much more complex than a gorilla or a chimp. Yeah. So you know, yeah. we can look at what the Bible tells us about the, the level of creation that humans are and how much different they are than you know, all of the other species. And therefore, because he made us in this much more complex fashion, then perhaps we have more responsibility when it comes to others and proclaiming that which we know that he's done for us. Yeah, no kidding. I'd like to shift gears for a second as we kind of enter into the final phase of today's chat together. And that is, I have a, that good friend that I mentioned in one of our recent chats. His name is Mike Kramer, very scientific kind of fella, uh, very intelligent. And there were some things that really piqued his interest. And I jotted some of them down and I had to dive into some of them myself because I hadn't explored them as he did. But he felt that there were several really strong questions that caused him to say, you know, I think that there are some pretty strong evidences of an intelligent designer behind a lot of the stuff that we can see here on this planet. My dog is coming to visit with me. Hello, Poppy. Good to see you, kiddo. Um, the Fibonacci sequence, people who are into science or if they've done any research into that would know there are certain ratios and sequences that are seen in nature that are just mind-blowing and mathematically perfect. And so we see these kinds of things that cause us to think, does that come from a mutation that's going in an upward spiral? Do mutations normally mutate that direction or... Do they normally mutate downward and become from order to disorder? So what are your thoughts about that specific thing? Well, it's interesting because the, the Fibonacci's we see in nature, but we would also teach Fibonacci ratios when we were teaching stock traders how to trade because there was some places where they would be used for certain uh, technical analysis. So 
Wow. We see it in places well beyond nature as well because it lends itself to more um, places in just in life than you might actually think. Yeah. But talking about mutations, you know, I was thinking about that. Um, mutations generally, if we look at it in a survival of the fittest uh, framework, mm-hmm. most mutations were negative. And what would happen is the mutant would not survive. Mm-hmm. So if we're starting from a point of lesser animals and one mutates, it's probably not going to survive. Yeah. So if it takes a thousand mutations to get one that's beneficial, mm-hmm. then that's a that's a long time. If it's one a generation and it takes a thousand generations to produce one that is an improvement, then is 13 billion years enough time Mm-hmm. for all of the mutations to happen in a positive way that generates thousands of species with a myriad of different characteristics. And I'm not sure it does, especially when most scientists say that life didn't begin that 13 billion years ago. It's a very small segment of that 13 billion when everything happened from first life to where we are today. Mm-hmm. That's a very perplexing question, and it's one worth diving into. Um, and I, I used to try to ask geologists about things like that, too. And you see a wide divergence between some geologists who try to support the narrative of a really long period of time. They just keep adding more zeros to make their point. And others who would say, you know, we just don't see that many tiny incremental steps in the fossil record. We see a lot of species, but we see them pretty much the way we see them. And when they've tried to make more out of uh, an intermediate species, some of those have proven to be dead ends or even hoaxes on occasion. So, yeah, it, that's a good question. I think it's worth being intellectually honest and asking, really, does it really, does the fossil record support that? Does the Fibonacci sequence support the fact that things can go from disorder to order, does that normally happen? And would it happen that specifically and that that much complexity? I think that's a good question. Well, even Darwin himself had issues. He, he created this theory, um, which was a, an interesting divergence from what orthodoxy would have said. Mm-hmm. But even he had doubts about it. You know, he said, there are some things here that I see and I don't know how that could come from a step-by-step sequential change improvement over hundreds of millions of years or even longer. And one of them was the eyeball. And I've struggled with that myself. Oh, man. You know, what a complex yeah. group of cells put together that allows us to see the universe <laughs> to me, it's a miracle. It's not something that just happened. Yeah, it's bizarre. And it's so many muscles that have to be involved with it and things that have just enough elasticity so that we can actually focus. And the eyes aren't the ones that are actually imaging. It's our brain that sees the image. This is just the lens that gets the light into that. I mean, it's just, wow, <laughs> so complex. I can see why that would have baffled and confused Darwin and caused him to think there's some... St- Still some things here that I really have to wrestle with. 
Yeah, and I think we do too. <laughs> Which, oh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, I think as I'm. If I'm remembering correctly, Rick, you were with me. We, I was with you, whichever. We were together in California on a Jan term trip, and we went to some different lectures as a part of that musical January. And yeah, one of those lectures was at Stanford University. Were you there? Yeah, that's where we met. Oh, that's right. That was the big trip. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Was it the Stanford or was it at Berkeley? That may have been Berkeley when we saw that one, because Stanford was the guy who was working with 3D sound. Yeah, that quadraphonic thing had just come out, and they were playing with it. But <laughs> in, at, at Berkeley, we saw all of those different organs and yeah. all of those kind of things. It was uh, very fascinating. That's cool. Well, then you know exactly what I'm talking about next, because there was something that blew my mind when a guy who was a violinist and a physicist put an oscilloscope out and he started playing some of the music from Bach. And when he would arrive at certain double stops and there would be certain harmonic vibrations, the amplitude would go way up. And he said, I started studying these kinds of auditory responses and physiologically, he said, we react to certain sounds that Bach wrote musically, and they happen to come on words like God and adore and heaven and some things like that. And did Bach know that? Was he a physicist? Was he an auditory expert? Or could it be that God may have, now this guy didn't raise this question. He was a scientist and he was a little afraid to, to go theological with it, but I'm going theological with it. I asked the question, could it be that God who wired all this together and who invented sound in the first place, the vibrations that would hit your eardrums and be translated into what we know as music because of pitch and rhythm, could God somehow inspire musicians, even like Bach, who was trying to write something that would glorify him and give him the words that also inspired him so that we would literally physiologically have a reaction? to the music that was there. And I say, yes, <laughs> I resonate with that literally and philosophically. Yes. I think God would do something just like that. So that's for me is a big evidence that there's something going on behind the scenes from an intelligent design perspective. Kind of go back in a direction we kind of looked at before. Mm -hmm. One of the things that, that resonates with me is the concept of biodiversity. Mm. You know, let's say there's primordial soup mm -hmm. and somebody had postulated that lightning comes down and strikes the, the, uh, the pool of soup. And like um, the lightning that strikes in young Frankenstein and reanimates the monster, it became alive. Now, generally, lightning is not so constructive. It's very destructive. Mm 
-hmm. But the question I have is life happens in the primordial soup, mm -hmm. probably a single celled creature of some sort. What did it eat? Ooh, good question. <laughs> because yeah. science tells us that a diverse ecosystem is necessary for life to continue. Mm -hmm. And if that's how it is now, wouldn't it make sense that that's how it was in the beginning, that there would need to be many different species that provide the food for different types of animals. Some mm -hmm. eat plants, some eat other animals. Um, biodiversity is kind of a big deal. Yeah. In the doomsayers will say that if we lose the bees, oh, you know, yeah. a single species, then life as we know it will fail. Because without the pollinators, then the plants don't produce their fruit mm -hmm. and some of the animals die. And if the animals die, then some of the other animals will die. So um, if we can lose one species and everything dies, how does it follow that if we have one species, then with nothing to eat, it turned into millions of species or thousands of species? That's a really good question. And I heard a very intriguing portion of an interview with somebody who was talking about this on NPR last year. One of my drives where I only catch five minutes of it and then I got to go to a meeting and I'm going, oh, I want to hear the rest. And they said that there were some people who were actually trying to pollinate by hand different plants and they were doing it successfully. But oh, my goodness, can you imagine how long it would take to do that? So you're right, and the doomsdayers are saying, if we lose the bees, we have some church property upon which someday we plan to build a building in which to worship. We haven't done that yet. We've been renting space. But the county that has to approve our plans suggested that since we have a creek and a lot of foliage on one side of our property, they said, would you be interested in putting some bees on your property? And we had a family in our church that was very interested in that. We said, yeah, we'll explore it. So we actually have bees on our property because we recognize that biodiversity is important. And we want to give back to our community in a way that's practical and helpful. And that's based on what I think the intelligent designer had in mind when he placed everything on this planet to operate together. And so we should be taking good care of this planet because God made it for us and we need to be good stewards of that. But that's a very good question about the whole biodiversity thing. Uh, that's one that always intrigued me, that how could things develop if there weren't the things to make it? Yeah. Know, if there's, if you've got one species, it's probably going to die before it can mutate enough to become something else. Yeah. And then <laughs> you know, if survival of the fittest is true, then if something replaces it that's more fit, then the first species can be eliminated. That doesn't make sense to me. So it makes more sense to go, all of this was created together mm -hmm. because all of the different species need each other to function in the, uh, the biosphere. Yep. As I continue to work out my salvation, not to work for it, but to work it out, I think that we're called to ask these tough questions. And I'm glad that we have some people who are helping us ask the tough questions, even within our own faith system, because we need to be honest enough that if we've been clinging to something simply because somebody told us that was true when we were young and we hadn't thought it through, we should be willing to say, 
yeah, that wasn't very logical. I'm going to have to shift my thinking on that specific doctrine or on that specific subject. For me, looking at these questions have actually caused me to feel more confident in a creator God. Other people may not be where I am. That's okay. Let's have conversations about it. But I'm glad that we're asking these tough questions. And you had raised a question in thinking ahead to today's talk when you had said, which takes more faith? To think that there's an intelligent designer, a creator who had a plan for everything and made that happen, or that everything came from nothing? I think that's a great question. Do we have the definitive answer that we can prove? No. But to my understanding, if there's a creator that put it all in place, then everything can work together without outside forces. Science would say that those who have to believe in a created a creator are weak-minded mm. or that their faith is a crutch that they use to develop a thought process that explains you know the whole universe without allowing the questions where science allows the best mind to continue to search for those true answers. Mm -hmm. To me, that says science doesn't have the answer. They're still looking for it. And maybe they'll find it. Yeah. It kind of gives them an out. We haven't found it yet, but but we're going to keep looking because that's easier for us to handle in our belief system than thinking that somewhere unseen is a power that's able to create everything together. Right. And I'm encouraged by seeing some good thinking people like my friend Mike and many others whom I've read about now that I realize that there are so many scientists who are professing believers. I'm grateful to see that there are people who are willing to think deep thoughts about that and who come to the conclusion, yeah, I believe that there is this superpower this almighty, whatever we want to call him. Some people have a hard time calling him God. Others would say, no, I have no trouble with that because I believe in Jesus Christ and I believe that God the Father and God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are the Trinity. And they say, but I see his his fingerprint. Every time I look into a microscope or a telescope, I can see God's fingerprint. And so when we see those things happening, it gives me confidence to say, I think it's okay for us to compassionately raise these tough questions Praying that the same Holy Spirit that drew me into a relationship with God will be drawing those who are asking these questions also into a relationship because I want them to have that relationship because I would love to spend eternity with them because I like deeply thinking people. And I think we could have some great discussions in the afterlife, in eternity someday. And I would love for them to be able to experience everything God has for all those who believe. In my experience, I have found that most honest Christians will admit that they've had doubts along the way where, you know, they weren't sure that what they believed was actually true. Now, in most cases, they will come back to a more solid faith afterwards. But what I found is the diehard atheists will rarely admit their uncertainty. Mm. It's like, this is how it is. And I have to ask, if both sides of the equation is a matter of faith, mm-hmm. which one is the more honest approach? Those who will say, I've had doubts, or I can entertain doubts without losing my faith? Or those that would say, this is the way it is, period. 
there's no doubt about it. Yeah, because that's dogmatic. That's dogma. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let me mention a couple of these books before we close for today, um, and I will put their links to uh, for you to be able to find them in our description. One of them is Making Sense of God by Timothy Keller. Another is The Reason for God by Timothy Keller. And then two of my favorites from a few years ago, The Case for a Creator by Lee Strobel and The Case for Faith also by Lee Strobel. Keller and Strobel are right up there in in my book of people who have really had good questions. They've dived into those questions and they present them not in a scoffing manner, but in an intellectually curious manner. And I just appreciate their tone, their love for people, and their love for a God enough to say, if I really care about you, of course I'm going to want to share the good things that God shared with me. Why wouldn't I share that? <laughs> and so I, I like their tone. So I just want to mention those, and we'll put that in the description for you. Any last parting shots for today, Rick? Well, I think you mentioned it earlier, and I think it's a, a way that we can conclude and that is we are continuing to work out our salvation or continuing to work out our faith. Mm-hmm. You know, and we do it because we understand that there may be more to it than we know. Mm-hmm. And so we have to keep looking, keep searching. But the verse that follows the one that, that you started with there says, For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Yeah. You were talking about the Holy Spirit nudging you into belief, talking about how he is continually at work to allow his presence to be known, to make his being Mm -hmm. uh, alive in our lives. And so he has a good purpose for each of of us. Mm -hmm. We talked about it in the five stages of purpose for the last five weeks. And that is so important that there, we know that there is a purpose for our lives that he has created that purpose. Mm -hmm. And if we will be open to eliminating our dogma to intellectual honesty and pursuing the questions, then he'll be right there. He'll, he'll be happy to show it. And that way we can, understand what that purpose is, the first of which is to be um, captivated by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which allows us to um, come into his presence in a meaningful way, to admit our sin, and to uh, come to know that he has allowed for forgiveness of all sins so that we can build that relationship with him, which is his strongest desire. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, I know it may make some people feel uncomfortable to have somebody pray for them. But if you're okay, listener, with me praying, I'd like to pray for you, too. If you're uncomfortable with it, you can stop now. But this is a very simple prayer, and I'd like to pray it as we close today. Lord, I do thank you for curiosity. I thank you for making people with curious minds. And I pray for those curious people who are willing to ask tough questions. And I pray that as they dig into these questions, that they'll have an open mind and that they will consider the possibility that some of these things we are wrestling with and trying to explore together may actually lead them to an intelligent designer who has a purpose 
for us. And if they're starting to sense that maybe there is something to that, I pray that they will reach out to you and be open to your revelation because you're a revelatory God. You like to reveal yourself to us. And I pray that they'll be open to having further conversations with others who are wrestling with these same issues. And I thank you that you love us all enough that you give us a chance to ask big questions and that you just continue to pour yourself out to us because it's your desire, as Rick just said, to have a relationship with us. These things I pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for hanging out with me again, Rick. It's always good. Oh, I enjoy it very much. For you who have hung in there with us today, I hope your brain is still intact. (laughs) And we hope that you'll join us again for another episode of Monday Monday Afternoon afternoon. Theologian. 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 Theologian.